0: I, uh, I I read a funny story uh, about a man who was walking by his his neighbor's house and saw his neighbor trying to get a a large wooden packing crate through his door. The big wooden crate was stuck. He walked up, from, and from the sidewalk he said to his neighbor, Here, let me try to help you. So they tried to maneuver that wooden crate through the door. And they pushed, and they pulled, and they pushed, and they pulled. Finally, after about 15 minutes, the man on the inside said, I guess it's no use. It just won't go out. The man on the outside said, Out? I thought you were trying to get it in. <clears throat> thank, thank God. That was funny, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> thank God the, the door to heaven isn't that hard to get through. If you recall, two weeks ago, we looked at the Lord's letter to the church in Laodicea, the last of the seven churches, where we were presented with this image of Jesus knocking on the closed door of this inactive and indifferent church. Remember that? But as we will see as we continue in this book of Revelation, we come to an ironic twist. Even though the door to the church may be closed, we find the door to heaven is wide open. Now, as a reminder, it is the Apostle John who is writing this book from a Roman penal colony on a barren, rocky island called Patmos. He was exiled there because of his faith in Jesus Christ and for preaching the gospel. John was doing what God wanted him to do. And because he was doing what God wanted him to do, John, who was a very old man, finds himself on Patmos, forced to work in the marble mines on this island. From our point of view, this may not seem right. This may not seem fair, but from God's point of view, this was an ideal situation for John to receive this divinely inspired revelation. What the Roman authorities did to shut John up, God used as an opportunity to produce one of the most popular books in the entire Bible. It was all part of God's purpose and plan all along. So, if you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, and we will begin with verse 1 should be up on the screen behind me. Revelation 4, beginning with verse 1. And John tells us, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. I want to draw your attention to the first three words in this passage. This chapter begins with the words, after these things. In fact, that phrase is used twice in the first verse which suggests that John is making an important transition to the next part of this book, which is explained in an outline provided back in chapter 1, verse 19. If you remember, the Lord gave John an outline for the entire book of Revelation when he said, Therefore... Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. The things which which you have seen applied to chapter 1. Those were the things that John just saw. The things which are applied to the churches in John's present day. These were the letters to the seven real churches we just looked at in chapters 2 and 3 that represented all churches during the church age. Then finally, there is the things that will take place. And those are the things that shall be hereafter, referring to the end times, described in chapters 4 through 22. So this is an important transition where God describes to John and to us in advance the things that must take place in the future. These things will not happen by chance. They don't occur by accident. They must take place according to God's purpose and plan. We're told in this passage that John was caught up in the Spirit, into heaven, meaning this was not a dream but rather by God's power, John was supernaturally permitted to experience something that we normally cannot experience. He was given a rare glimpse into heaven, more specifically, the throne room of God. So what happened to John's body? Did it remain in Patmos? Or was it transported to heaven? We're not told. But the same thing happened to the Apostle Paul about 40 years earlier when he too got a glimpse of heaven and likewise did not know what happened to his own body. Paul did not know if he was in the body while in heaven or he had an out of body experience. But whatever happened to Paul, his experience in heaven gave him the confidence and the peace to endure his own persecution and suffering. Now, unfortunately, Paul was not permitted to share his experience. But John, on the other hand, was told to record everything that he sees and he hears and to share it with us. And the first thing that caught John's eye was the throne. It's the centerpiece in the room. And everything else John described was in relation to the throne. The throne is mentioned some 40 times in the book of Revelation. And the throne is the key word in this chapter because it symbolizes the power and the rule of the one who sits on it. God the Father. It's our heavenly Father who sits there. It's not an empty throne. And this is so important to grasp before it's revealed what must happen on the earth. For no matter what happens on the earth, no matter what is coming on the horizon, God is on the throne, He is sovereign. And his purposes and his plans must take place. I think this is very important to understand, especially later when it appears that Satan and the Antichrist and his false prophet, referred to as the Satanic Trinity, seem to have the upper hand when in fact, they do not. Although all hell breaks loose upon the earth, there is absolutely no panic in heaven, for God is on His throne. It's not an empty throne. Then John tries to describe what he sees expressed in vivid colors. You have the next slide? Okay. If you notice, John does not describe a form or a figure seated on the throne. Instead, he uses images of color and light he tells us that the one seated on the throne was like a jasper stone and sardis in appearance. Jasper stone is a clear gem, similar to a diamond. And sardis is red in color, similar to a ruby. These were colors selected by God for John to see. And they most likely, most likely, represented some aspect of God's glory. But we can only guess at that. Did you notice in our passage John's use of the word like? We will see that word used often in the book of Revelation. As you might imagine, John's senses are in overdrive. One moment, he was in a prison setting on Patmos. And now he's experiencing the palace. The throne room of God. John is overwhelmed by what he sees, the brilliance and the flashes of colors, possibly colors that he has never seen before, colors beyond our normal spectrum of vision. And he's having difficulty putting what he sees into words. Therefore, he uses the word like over and over again. So the glory of God is like Jasper and Sardis. It is not Jasper and Sardis. You understand the difference? okay? In addition to these colors, there is something like an emerald-hued rainbow that completely encircles the throne. I don't know if it is something like you see on the slide of a, a vertical looking rainbow or perhaps it is horizontal like a halo. We are not told. But I do know that a rainbow usually appears after a storm but here it comes before the storm and maybe consistent with God's promise his never this never-ending rainbow symbolizes God's mercy mercy that endures forever even in the midst of of judgment and wrath remember by God's mercy people will still be saved during the tribulation period next we see John's attention is diverted from the throne to those around the throne look at verse 4 Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. There are all kinds of ideas about these. 24 elders seated around the throne of God. At least a dozen or so ideas. But eventually, these ideas boil down to just a few possibilities. Either their mention is merely symbolic in nature, they're just symbols, or they are angels, or They are saints. We are not told exactly what they are. But I do have some thoughts. When it comes to the Bible, to include the book of Revelation, I tend to take things literal. Until it is obvious it should not be taken Literal. Okay? And as a result, I don't believe these 24 elders are just symbols. For as we will see later, they participate in various types of activities in the throne room. So these 24 elders are not symbols. They are heavenly beings of sort. Are they angels? I don't believe they are angels either. Because although angels may wear white garments, I'm not aware of angels being seated upon thrones in the presence of God wearing golden crowns on their heads. What about saints? Could they be saints? Well, Jesus did promise that his followers would sit with him around his throne. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 19 verse 28, Truly I say to you, "...that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel." We're also told these elders wear golden crowns. In this usage... The Greek word for crown is Stephanos, which is a victor's crown, given as a reward. What did Paul tell us in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So putting it all together, I believe, like most people, that the 24 elders represent the 12 tribes of Israel from the Old Testament, and the 12 apostles from the New Testament. Collectively, collectively, they represent the redeemed, the family of God throughout history. This is where I personally land. And if we jump ahead to Revelation chapter 21, which is a great chapter, verses 12 and verses 14, we see the same two groups mentioned in the New Jerusalem. Verse 12. It had, this is, he's describing the New Jerusalem to us. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And the names, and names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. And then in verse 14, and the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the apostles of the Lamb. So I believe these 24 elders represent the Old Testament, Old Testament saints, the tribe of Israel, and also represent the apostles. And collectively, they represent the church age. Okay, back to chapter 4. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. Out of the throne... Come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes, in front and behind. Again, all of John's senses are alive. He's seeing and hearing all of this. He was probably like a small child seeing a huge 4th of July fireworks display for the very first time. John sees flashes of lightning, and he hears booming thunder, signs for us that a storm is on the way. We're also told that present with the Heavenly Father is the Holy Spirit, represented in His fullness as the seven spirits of God. So in the throne room, We see God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And the stage is set for God the Son in chapter 5. John tells us there is also a sea of glass like crystal around the throne. And as we might expect, there are all kinds of wild guesses about the symbolism of what John is seeing here. The suggestions about the sea of glass are mind-numbing. Absolutely mind-numbing. Maybe it's symbolic. And maybe it's nothing more than a sea of glass. But with that, I do want to say this. During the tribulation period, people on the earth will feel as if they are being tossed around in a raging, stormy sea. But in heaven, around the throne, it will be a smooth and calm. As a sea of glass. A sea of peace. And contentment. For God is on his throne. It's not an empty throne. Okay. Now speaking of wild guesses. John introduces us to the four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. And these four living creatures appear to be the nearest to God. They are around the throne and John continues to describe them in verses 7 and 8. He says, The first creature was like a lion. And the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures each one of them having six wings and full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. This could keep us up all night trying to figure this out. And we never will. Although not identical, there seems to be some similarity of John's description of these creatures to the descriptions of high-ranking angels called seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6, which means fiery or burning ones, and cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 1 and in Ezekiel chapter 10, which are angels who function as attendants or guardians of sacred places. So they could be seraphim or cherubim or a special combination of the two or they could be angelic beings so unique in appearance and function that there is absolutely nothing else like them. We just aren't told. In regards to their description with their different faces Six wings on each. And all those eyes. That's a lot of eyes. That must be a sight to see. I can only imagine they represent some aspects of God's nature and His creation. Again, we could spend all day on this and unfortunately in the end we could very well miss the forest because of all the trees. Meaning, we could get so focused on dissecting every little detail and guessing what they mean, and they would be guesses, and miss the big picture. And the big picture is this. God Is not like us. His ways are not our ways. His dwelling place is nothing like we have ever seen. And the heavenly creatures around him are beyond our comprehension. But there is something about them we can understand. The most important thing about these creatures is not what they look like, it's what they are doing. They worship God, they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. God's holiness is the only attribute in the Bible that is mentioned three times in a row. It's not love, love, love. It's not mercy, mercy, mercy. It's holy. Holy, holy. It's what makes God God. And it sets him apart from everything and everyone else. The Lord is not like us, he is holy. He is set apart. Now, John is not done. And it continues to tell us about the activities around the throne. Look at verses 9 through 11. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who sits." On the throne, and will worship him who lives forever and ever, and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were. Created. What was the dominant activity in heaven? It's worship. It's never ceasing worship, further demonstrated by the 24 elders casting their crowns before the throne of God. According to Adam Clark, this is representative of a common practice in the ancient Roman Empire. The emperor of Rome ruled over many lesser kings, like King Herod, for example. And these kings were at times commanded to come before the emperor and lay their crowns before him in honor and respect. Then the emperor would give the crowns back as a demonstration that their crowns, their right to rule, and their victory came from him and him alone. Though they were kings, they had to acknowledge the supremacy of the emperor. If the 24 elders are the saints who represent the family of God from all time, as I believe they are, then there will come a time when we too will cast the crowns given to us as victors before the throne of God in worship. You know, worship should be should come natural to us as followers of Jesus Christ. But I have concerns. And I think Charles Swindoll summed it up best. He said, my great concern is that we tend to play the game of church. We learn how to dress, how to sit, how to look. We even learn the words of the songs. But what about our focus when we sing them? While we sing, a mighty fortress is our God, we're thinking, why did she wear a dress like that? We belt out how great thou art and wonder, what am I having for lunch? And we can do that without even changing our expressions. That's not worship, that's playing the game of church. What then is worship? Swindoll continues and says, Simply put, worship is ascribing worth to something or someone. We attribute value, honor, and devotion to the object of our worship. When we truly worship God, we turn all of our attention affection, and adoration toward Him. That's the missing jewel. Worshiping God by ascribing to Him supreme worth, for He alone is worthy. God alone is the subject of our praise and the object of our worship. We miss it when our focus becomes horizontal, riveted on people and things, rather than vertical, centered on God and God alone. He says, It has become too common for Christians. To surrender everything for their work. But at the same time, to sacrifice nothing in worshiping the one who gave his life to save ours. I mean, stop to think about that. Is that you? I mean, is that me? Does the church game describe what worship has become to us? Is it just something we do here for an hour and a half, two hours on a Sunday morning? Is that it? Is that what worship has become? Nothing else than that. Dr. Vernon Whaley has been training worship leaders for decades. His passion for worship stems from a small Alaska church he attended as a child. His parents were missionaries there, and they had a deep concern for people. With disabilities. When they met for services, it was a remarkable crowd. An alcoholic turned deacon, a prostitute transformed into a Sunday school teacher, a blind man who played the piano, a former felon who kept the church grounds. A young woman, lame from birth. And a young man with Down syndrome who helped take the offering. They all came to worship God in that small church. And they loved to sing. Especially on Sunday nights. They sang songs after songs after songs after songs. It was a Sunday night sing, they called it. Dr. Whaley recalls one Sunday night as a child, there was a stir in the middle of the congregation. He turned around to see a disabled girl slowly steering her wheelchair to the front of the church. The converted alcoholic got up and helped her roll to the front of the pulpit. His father, Reverend Whaley, came down near her. Using her alphabet slate, she told him she wanted to sing a solo. She wanted to sing Amazing Grace. The blind pianist struck up the tune for Amazing Grace And the girl began making groans and moans in time with the music. Dr. Whaley said, I was not able to understand a word she sang, but somehow that did not matter. All of us understood intuitively what she was doing. And more important, why? She was doing it. There was no doubt. We all knew. She was worshipping God. From the heart. In light of who we are. And recognizing who God is. And what he has done for us. Should move us. To worship him from the heart. And that should be an attitude that stays with us no matter where we are. Tony Evans says if you limit worship to where you are, the minute you leave the place. Of worship, you will leave your attitude of worship behind, like a crumbled-up church bulletin. Whew. Did you get that? If this is all there is for worship, if this all—it's just a couple hours on a Sunday. Wow, we've missed it. We've missed it. So the question is, and I had to ask the question too Are you truly worshiping God from your heart? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're on the throne, it's not an empty throne. I thank you that you're sovereign, that you're in complete control. And even though at times things may seem chaotic and out of control, you know exactly what you're doing. You have your own purposes and your own plans. Father, help us to trust you when we don't understand. Help us to trust you when things are hard. Thank you, Lord God, for your love for us. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your mercy in that you did not give us what we deserve. Punishment. And thank you for your grace that you gave us what we did not deserve, and that is your love and forgiveness. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are on your throne. Father, help us to love you, help us to worship. Help us to be devoted to you in all that we do. Whether it be here or outside these walls, may you be honored and glorified in our thoughts, in our minds, in our actions. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning I was uh, thinking on that passage in Luke chapter 7. You know the passage. The passage where Jesus was, was dining with some Pharisees and his own disciples. Of course, the Pharisees and the religious leaders were scrutinizing everything Jesus was doing. And then this woman, this woman walks in. Remember this, she walks in and she drops to the feet of Jesus. And she's weeping over his feet. And she's drying his feet with her hair. Remember the story? Remember the story. Apparently this woman had a bad reputation. And they could not believe that Jesus would let her do this, even touch him. And then Jesus says something very interesting. He tells the Pharisee, you know, when I came to your house, it's common custom that you wash you wash the feet of those invited. That was common custom, but you didn't wash my feet. And here this woman has washed my feet with her tears and dried them off with her hair. And then he says this. This is so important. This is what I want to drive home. He says this. He who has been forgiven much loves much. He who has been forgiven much Loves much. Do we forget that sometimes? Do we forget just how forgiven we are? Do we take it for granted? I do. Absolutely. The apostle John, who who wrote the book of Revelation, also wrote John. First John. And he says. We love God. Why? Because He first loved us. Our love for God, our devotion to God, is a reaction, it is a response to His love for us, to His forgiveness toward us. And if we lose sight of that, of the simple gospel truth that He has forgiven us and loves us, if we lose sight of that, then this is this is what our worship looks like—just going through the motions. If we just forget what He's done, who He is. Right? That's what happens. Do you want to love God more? I do. then I challenge you. If you want to love God more, discover how much more He loves you. Our love is a response to His love for us. If you want to love God more, then discover how much more He loves you. How much he has forgiven you. Don't take it for granted. Find out for yourselves. He loves you dearly. He went to the cross for you. Personally for you. We say that a lot here, don't we? We say that a lot. But sometimes it just kind of rolls, it just it just kind of like rolls off the tongue in one ear, out the other. I, I'm no different. I'm just like I'm just like you. I'm just like you. Sometimes I have, I have to personally just to get into the word of God and just, and just, Lord, show me how much you love me. I'm not asking Him to rescue me from anything, but in Your Word, just, just make it come alive just how much You love me and have forgiven me. Help me to see this. Help me to experience it because I want to love You more. It's always a reaction to what He's done to us. Always a reaction. That's my challenge for you this morning. If you want to love God more, and I'm sure you do, find out how much more He loves you and has forgiven you. That's what I ask you this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you do not know the love of God and the forgiveness He has offered you. I would love to tell you about it. I'd love to tell you about it. He loves you so much. Hard to describe. Maybe you're looking for a church home. We'd love to have you. Will make you feel at home. <laughs> Absolutely. Definitely going to feed you. Absolutely. Maybe there's something else on your on your heart. I would love to pray with you. We got a fancy room back there. I'd love to chat with you. I'm here on Mondays. We can we can talk. Whatever the Lord leads on your heart, I just ask you be obedient to Him because He loves you. You can trust Him. Do what He asks you to do. Let me close us in prayer. Again, glad to have you all this morning. Let me close us in prayer. I want to pray for our offering. I remember just to remind you the baskets are back there and then also for our fellowship together. Father, I thank you so much for, for drawing us here this morning. Heavenly Father, I, I do honestly pray, Lord God, that you would, just, uh, you would just help us to have hearts that are just, that are just focused on you, that are devoted to you. Father, give us a passion and a zeal for you. And Father, help us to trust you in all things. Lord, we come to a time for this service of taking up uh, tithes and offerings. And Heavenly Father, I do pray that you'd you'd bless the the, the gift and the giver. I pray God we'd be cheerful, cheerful givers. And Heavenly Father, as a church, I pray that you would help us to use your money wisely. And it is your money. And Father, for our fellowship, Lord God, I thank you for that. I thank you for these people. Lord God, I pray that you bless the food that we are about to partake of. Bless those who prepared food and brought food. And Lord God, bless the food to our bodies. May our fellowship be sweet, Lord God. And I thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.